Our Old Testament text this morning is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, loved ones, this is God's word. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he was numbered out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Our New Testament text. Is Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will be raised again. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. 
So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give, to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray together, brothers and sisters. Oh God, our Father, thank you for your word. Your word is life-giving. Your word is uh, full of power. Your word brings forth what you desire to accomplish. By your word, you created the heavens and the earth. And by your word, you are creating a new creation in which righteousness dwells. Father, we pray that you would indeed speak to us through your word this morning. And that you'd give us hearts to hear it and trust it and trust you and to love you. We pray all these things in our Savior's name. Amen. A hundred years ago, a Presbyterian minister named J. Gresham Machen wrote a little book called Christianity and Liberalism. And in this book, he was setting out the difference that he saw between true, historic Christianity on the one side, what Christians have always believed, and on the other side, the theological liberalism that was creeping into the church and spreading through the church like a virus at that time. And as Machen writes the book, one of his main points about the gospel is this, that the gospel is not about what we do, but about what God does. That the gospel is, is not, first of all, a, a way of life for us, but it's an announcement, breaking news of what God has done to save sinners. We can say the gospel is not the life advice column on the back of the newspaper. The gospel is the front page breaking news about what God has done. And the many pastors and teachers at the time were, were preaching a different gospel. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus is a good example. Jesus helps us reform society. But over against this, Machen writes in his book, he says, according to Christian belief, Jesus is our Savior. Not by virtue of what he said, not even by virtue of what he was, but by virtue of what he did. He is our Savior, not because he's inspired us to live the same kind of life that he lived, but because he took upon himself the dreadful guilt of our sins and bore it instead of us on the cross. Loved ones, that's the gospel, the good news of the gospel. And the temptation to, to 
move away from that or believe something else is a constant and continuous temptation. It was there before Machen's Day, all the way back. Paul, writing the letter to the church in Galatia, he says, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting the gospel I preach to you and brothers and sisters in our own day because we are proud-hearted people and we want a part in the saving of ourselves. We want some of the credit, some of the righteousness, some of the work of salvation to be, to be ourselves. So we need to hear the gospel, the true gospel, that there is only one way of salvation and it's found in Christ, in Christ alone. We need to hear that over and over and over. That it's not that the gospel is the power of me, myself, and I unto salvation, but the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And now in the passage we just read, in Matthew 20, Jesus is going to give a radical call to obedience and faithfulness and service and sacrifice. He's going to give us a lot to do. But before he gives us anything to do, he tells us what he has come to do. That until he saves and serves us, we can't go serve anyone else. Before he does Uh, Before he calls us to obedience, he calls us to himself as our Savior. We start by looking at his mission here in the text. The mission of the Son of Man, verse 17, uh, begins the, the passage we're looking at this morning. Jesus tells us there that he's on his way up to Jerusalem. Um, this is not surprising. It's, it's getting close to the time of the Passover. So pretty much every Jew in Palestine is on their way up to Jerusalem together as, as Passover is the, the great feast uh, that they're going up to together in, this, in the city. Uh, so the roads around the, heading to Jerusalem would have been crowded with travelers. Um, the air would have been filled with excitement, right? It's sort of like when Christmas is coming. This is the big feast. This is the big celebration. Uh, so they're all heading up to Jerusalem together to celebrate what God did so long ago to bring them up out of slavery in Egypt and bring them into the promised land. But for Jesus and his disciples, as they're going up to the Passover, the mood is very different. Um, Mark's Gospel Chapter 10, also uh, pointing to the same period in, in, in the story of Christ's life. Chapter 10 in Mark's Gospel tells us that Jesus is actually, at least for part of the trip, striding along in front of the disciples. That they're following him, but it's almost as though they, they can't keep up quite, and they don't dare keep up quite. It says that they're amazed and even frightened and fear because of his determination and because of what he said waits for them in Jerusalem, they know that in Jerusalem, it's the, it's the hotbed of opposition to Christ. It's where the religious authorities have, have, uh, have, are based and where, where they are, are dead set against Jesus Christ. And they have already attempted to kill him and they want to kill him. Jesus knows it. The disciples know it. And Jesus marches straight into it because he knows this, not in spite of the fact that he knows this. And so as they're on the road there, Jesus pulls the disciples aside, aside from the busy crowds and this busy route up to Jerusalem. And he pulls them aside and he, he tells them once again, for a third time now, what his mission is. What his mission is as the Son of Man, as the Messiah going up to Jerusalem. He tells us here four things 
excuse me, three things in verses 18 through 19. First, he tells them that he is going up to suffer and be betrayed. Uh, He doesn't tell them here who is going to betray him, but it's one of the twelve disciples who's going to betray him. It's one of his closest friends, one of the disciples who's been with him, eaten with him, heard him, watched him, and walked with him. One of his disciples is going to be his betrayer. Uh, It is excruciating, isn't it, to have a close friend, someone you know know and and love, and someone you trusted to turn against you, to harm you, to betray you. Psalm 55 looks forward to Christ's experience of this and describes it like this. It is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house when we walked in the throng. That is Christ's experience. It's it's an experience of agonizing betrayal from a friend who he loved and a friend whom he thought loved him. And he's, he's, he's going up to Jerusalem, and his mission is to endure that betrayal. But there's more betrayal, isn't there? Not just Judas, who, who's going to, as an individual, betray him, but as Jesus describes, as he speaks of his betrayal here, I think, I think he also is speaking of the betrayal, the rejection of so many of the Jews of his day that the religious leaders especially have rejected him. He has come to be their Savior. He is the long-expected Messiah, and he's come to give his life to save them. And they're rejecting him. This is not a, a light thing for Christ. This is not something he could just brush off because he knew it was going to happen. It was agonizing for him. We read this in just a few chapters in Matthew 23. He, he, he's looking at Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. You see his love for his people, his compassion for his people and his longing for them to be saved, to know the Savior who's with them and his agony that they have rejected him. That they're going to fabricate false charges and condemn him to die. But this is his mission. He knows it. He knows that he has come in order for this to happen. That's what he's called to do as Messiah. So he doesn't shrink back from this. He goes straight into it. Second, he tells his disciples here, that he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, that the the Jews who are going to uh, condemn him, they don't have the authority themselves to condemn someone to death uh, because they're under Rome's rule. So they're going to have their trial, find him guilty of death on their terms, and then give him over to the Romans uh, to be be put to death by them. Um, There's a deeply humiliating irony here, uh, brothers and sisters. The Jewish Messiah was supposed to be the one who would rule over the nations, who would have authority over the nations, who would defeat the nations. 
Psalm 2, for example, says, The Lord said to my Lord, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do, right? But now Jesus says, Well, no, the Gentiles, unclean, unholy, and despised, are going to crush the Messiah. They're going to put him to death. Third, Jesus tells us here what they will do to him. He describes it in astonishing detail. He says that they will, uh, they will, they will mock him, they will flog him, and then they will crucify him. He knows, our Lord knows, what's going to happen in, in, in full detail, that he's going to be humiliated and, and, and spit upon and laughed at and, and slapped and beaten and degraded and, and whipped and stripped naked and nailed to a cross and hung up to die. He knows exactly what's about to happen in, in all this detail that, that he is going to be crucified by the Romans. And he sees it before him like a clear picture, but he keeps on going. J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, The Lord Jesus knew from the beginning what was before him. The treachery of Judas, the fierce persecution of the chief priests and scribes, the unjust judgment, the delivery to Pontius Pilate, the mocking, the scourging, the crown of thorns, the cross, the hanging between two malefactors, the nails, the spear, all were spread before his mind like a great picture. He can see it, as it were, playing in his head. And he just keeps going. Steadfast, can't be dissuaded, can't be turned away from this. Ryle says his heart was set on finishing the mighty work he came into the world to do. When you have something hard to do, something painful to go through, and you know it's ahead of you, how do you approach it? Boldly? Straight into it? Our Lord Jesus has the hardest thing to do. He has hell before him. The wrath of God to bear. And he keeps going and going straight into it. Won't turn aside. Why? What's motivating him? He doesn't tell the disciples right here in these verses, what's motivating him. But he does, a few verses down, in the last verse we read, verse 28, he says this, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why, this is why he came. His life is, is the payment for sin. He's come to give the, the ransom payment, the redemption for, for sin. Um, a ransom, right? In the Old Testament, it's used to refer to God's deliverance of his people. He, he buys them out of slavery, as it were. Um, he, he redeems them from Israel. It's to say that God has, has set his people free from the sin and from the, the slavery that they were under. We read about this in Isaiah 53 at length, where this is described how, how Christ is going to bear the sins of his people. The servant, the suffering servant, is going to be cut off for them and wounded for them and, and carry their guilt and, and make the payment for their sins. Matthew's Gospel begins with the 
reminder to us that this is Christ's mission. We're told in Matthew one twenty one that Jesus' name uh, will be Jesus because it, it refers to God as the Savior and Jesus will save His people from their sins. And now Jesus Himself is telling us this is, this is His mission. He's told us what He's going to do and now He's telling us why He's going to do it. He's, he's, he's come to do it to pay the price that His people could not pay themselves to give His life as a ransom. We try all kinds of things to pay our own ransom price. Um, we sometimes try to bury our guilt. We deny it so that we don't think we have a debt for our own sin. Uh, uh, we, we can pretend we're not, we're not guilty. But deep down, it might be stuffed in a closet, but our guilt is there, and we cannot pay it ourselves. We, we might try to uh, go through some hardships uh, on our own, suffer something on our own to, to make up, to pay for it, do penance somehow. Um, or, or we try to do good things to, to try to make up for the, the bad things. But brothers and sisters, um, uh, our good deeds cannot cancel out the debt of sin that we owe. Our best works are deeply sinful, even at their core. And they just add to the debt that we owe. Sin's, sin's grip on us is like a noose. And the tighter we struggle against it and try to solve it on our own, the tighter it gets. The tighter it gets. And so Jesus is, is telling us that He is the only one, the only one who can save us, and that He has come in order to die for us. J.C. Ryle says, again, this is the mightiest truth in the Bible. Let us take care that we grasp it firmly and never let it go. Have you grasped firmly the truth that Jesus came to ransom you from your sin and from the wrath and curse of God. Are your sins paid for by Christ in full? Are you set free from, from sin in full by the Lord Jesus Christ? That is His mission. That is why He came. To save us. But there's another mission. A second mission we see in the text. And that is the mission of the sinful heart. Uh, we are not only see Christ's mission, we also see the mission that James and John have. And that's a sinful mission. Um, Jesus' disciples have now, as they're listening to him say this, they've heard him predict his death three times. And this third time is very concrete, very specific for them. Um, but they still don't seem to get that, that this is his, his, his reason that he's come, that this is his mission. They understand that what's about to happen is, is serious and, and weighty. They're amazed and even afraid, fearful of what Christ is, is so uh, boldly going towards. But they don't seem to grasp the fact that his humiliation is, 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 as the suffering servant is so fundamental to his mission. They, they seem to look at Christ, yet yeah, maybe he's going to suffer some, but it's not going to be a, a big part of his mission. It's, it's, it's a bug, not a feature. It's not the main thing that he's going to do. Um, their minds are, are fixed on, on glory, on, okay, let's get, the, let's get the suffering bit over with, let's get on to the, to the resurrection, the glory, and the kingdom coming in, in power. And so Jesus' disciples, James and John, come to him with this request that's on their hearts, that they be given the positions of honor, one that is right and one that is left in the, in the kingdom. Now, before we jump on them, for the foolishness and the selfishness of what they're asking, there is something to admire about what they're asking. Um, 
they seem to expect that Jesus is able to bring the kingdom, don't they? That they have full confidence that his kingdom is about to come, even though so many of the religious authorities in Jerusalem are, are dead set against him. Um, they have confidence that he's going to be able to overthrow the Romans. I mean, that, that's a lot of confidence, isn't it, for them to have in Christ? That he's going to bring in this golden age of Israel. Um, they have faith that he'll do this. But that faith is mixed. Uh, and there's a lot of pride and selfishness and ambition mixed in with it. Jesus, um, uh, when you set up your kingdom, we want to be there. We want to be at your right and your left. We want to be getting credit with you, praise with you. Um, Jesus did say in chapter 19, 28, that the 12 apostles would sit on 12 thrones. But they want the two best thrones right next to Christ. The other disciples, the other 10, they hear about this request and and their hearts are, are no better. They hear about it and they're angry and they're jealous and they're bitter uh, because they want to be in the place of honor. Now, as we've seen them, as we've seen the disciples throughout the gospel, it gets exhausting after a while, I think. Come on, guys. Don't you get it yet? I mean, Christ has said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Christ has said, unless you become like a little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Christ has said that his kingdom is for the least and the last and the lowest and that to come into the kingdom means that you humble yourself and you put aside all pride and self-serving. That the first will be last and the last will be first. He said these things over and over and over to his disciples. But their hearts remain stubbornly self-focused. Um, they, sh they should know by now the very nature of his kingdom is contradictory with self-serving ambition. One theologian puts it very well. He says, despite all the teaching Jesus had given, they had still not realized that the kingdom meant lowliness, sacrifice, and rejection in this world. Who would ask for a place of honor in such a kingdom? Who could ask for places of honor in such a kingdom? To ask that question is to show that you have not understood what the kingdom is. It is, listen, it is impossible to seek greatness for yourself in Christ's kingdom. But as we look at the disciples and we see their exhausting self-centeredness, pride, and ambition, we are looking in the mirror, brothers and sisters. We are seeing a reflection of ourselves, the pride of our hearts. Our Lord says He came to serve. Our hearts naturally say, I am here to be served. I am here to be treated well. I am here to be helped by others and taken care of by others and, and blessed by others. Not to give, but to, to, to be given to. Um, we were made uh, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but our heart's sinful chief end revises that to say, my chief end is to glorify myself and enjoy myself forever. And that should be your chief end too, by the way. Just like them. How do we unlearn this? What's the solution for an intractably proud, stubborn heart? We see the third mission now in the text, that Jesus calls us to. And this is our third point, the mission of servants in the servant. 
As Jesus responds to his disciples, um, he calls us to two things. First of all, he calls us to suffer. Look with me at his words to James and John in verses 22 and 23. They've just asked for the best seats, the highest seats of honor in his kingdom, at his right and at his left. And he says to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? That's a scary question. The cup is a symbol for the wrath of God. It's a symbol for God's judgment. It's a symbol of suffering. And Jesus is about to drink that cup. And he's saying that those who are his disciples, called to a great position in his kingdom, are going to have to drink it too. As he, as he talks to them here, their, their request for the place that is right and is left, it's going to be uh, interesting, right? To think, to, it's interesting to think about how in, in just a few days, there will be someone on his right and his left as he, as he brings his kingdom with power. But it's going to be two men crucified on either side of him. Um, he's about to take on to himself the wrath of God for sins, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And so he's, he's asking James and John, are you ready for that? Are you ready to drink my cup? They very audaciously say, yes, yes, we're ready. Um, I, think, I, think, I think they know that, that Christ's calling includes some kind of suffering. And yeah, we're ready to die for you, Jesus. Um, but they seem to rush into this answer without, without much thought. And yet Jesus doesn't really correct them. He says, yes, you will drink it. James, he doesn't tell them here, uh, but James will be beheaded for Christ's sake. John will be uh, exiled to the island of Patmos for Christ's sake. They will drink the cup as well. Not the cup of, of God's wrath, but the, the cup of fellowship and the sufferings of Christ. But Jesus says, you will, you will suffer these things, but it's not my place to decide who will be at my right or at my left. Why, why does Jesus take the conversation in this direction? You know, I would think he, he would just um, simply go straight into, uh, in, into, into what he says to the other ten disciples in verse 25 about ambition in the kingdom and, and the call to serve in the kingdom. Why does he talk about suffering in response to their request for glory and honor? I think because he is showing them this is the way to true honor in his kingdom. Not, not personal pride and ambition, but, but real honor in Christ's kingdom, real credit in his, in, in his kingdom it, it is through the path of, of suffering. He's, he's pointing them away from their private pursuit of ambition in his kingdom, and he's pointing them to himself as the one who's going to suffer for them and drink the cup of God's wrath and then enter into God's glory. And I think he's, he's, he's calling them and he's calling us as his disciples that if we would be great in the kingdom, we must put aside all desires for greatness and suffer with our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the first blow he gives to our pride. He calls us to suffer for his sake. The second blow he gives to our pride is that he calls us to serve. Serve others for his sake. Uh, verses 26 to 27, he tells us that our way of thinking must be the polar opposite of the world's way of, of thinking. People of the world, how do they think about relationships with each other? Well, it's you see it even in uh, the youngest kids cutting each other in line in school, right? They want to they wanna be the first to get the slice of pizza at lunch. They want to be the first in line, the first picked. We try to get the best for ourselves. 
we try to get what we want for ourselves. When you ask children what they want to be, when they grow up, you don't hear them say, I want to be a slave. No. I want to be president. Who wants to be a servant? That's not the way our sinful hearts think. But Jesus says, that's the way the world operates. Ambition for self. But if you want to be great in my kingdom, you must become a servant. You must become a slave, he says. The lowest possible position on the social ladder of his day. Sometimes we talk about right, climbing, climbing the corporate ladder, climbing the social success ladder, climbing, climbing, uh, climbing uh, the political ladder. Right? We we describe this as, as we're ambition to, to get up there and and and, and reach the top. Um, but in in Christ's kingdom, loved ones, you're going down the ladder. Ambition takes you down, not up. In Christ's kingdom, a desire to serve. A desire to orient your whole life, not around yourself first, but around Christ, and then, and then towards serving others, the needs of others. Jesus says here that whoever desires to be great, let him be your servant. Um, it's one thing to serve Christ cheerfully. It's another thing to serve his people cheerfully to serve others cheerfully and well. Christ is perfect, and he loves us with an everlasting love, and he does not offend us, hurt us, or sin against us, but others do. His people do, but yet he still calls us to be a servant for his sake for others, not just when it's easy, but when it's hard and painful to bear. This is the mission we're called to as Christ's servants, to uh, to forsake pride, ambition, and self and become a suffering servant for Christ's sake to those around us in his church. This was Christ's mission. And if we're following Christ, he's going to lead us down the ladder, down into humility after him. Are you doing that, brothers and sisters? That's what it is to follow Christ. It's, it's to go down into the valley of humiliation after him, to suffer and to serve for the sake of of others is your life oriented around him and, and, and service to his people. That's a lot to ask, isn't it? That, that, that calls us to self-denial. We're not born bubbling over with anticipation that I get to serve and suffer for others. Um, how do we do this? As Jesus, as Jesus draws this section to a close here, um, he says in verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. What's he doing? He's pointing the disciples to himself as their example, but he's, he's doing it, also showing them that he's their savior in it. That he's the one who did this perfectly. So if you want to grow in serving others, you have to know him. You have to be served by him, saved by him, suffered for by him. And to know that and come to know that, then and only then can you in obedience to him Go and suffer and serve by the strength that he supplies those in his church. So by his grace, let us make that our mission. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our suffering servant. We pray that you would equip us to serve out of the way that he has served us. Help us to pursue humility 
to be ambitious for lowliness and service in His kingdom. And that we would do it all for for His glory. We pray this in His name. Amen.